Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down to a single topic and dig deep. Today, we are talking about how startups are faring in today's more conservative market conditions and working to better understand which, with 10-figure valuations, are dying, surviving, or thriving. To help us better understand both history and the current moment, Jeff Richards, one of the managing partners at GGV, is joining us today. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Great to see you. Good to see you, too. It's been actually a minute since we've talked, I feel. <laughs> it's been a couple of years. No. Yeah. Are you serious? I think so. Oh. Well, every once in a while on Twitter, we connect. But uh, I think in, in a podcast format, it's been a couple of years. Oh, that's terrifying. Actually, it's a, great, it's a great way to start because this whole podcast kicked off with us talking on actually Twitter DMs just to kind of spill the tea about where companies are today, what's going on. Because as you know, everyone wants to understand the market, including myself, and you're quite the resource for it. But I want to go back a little bit in time because We've spent so much time in the last couple of years thinking about where we are now and what's changed in the last six months. But I think that it would help to kind of put into context what happened that ended up with the great venture boom that kind of concluded in late 2020, late 2021, sorry. So I was going back through some Fed data and interest rates went down to 0% after the great financial crisis in 2008. And they stayed there through roughly 2016. Then they went up for a while. Then they went back down to zero. And it was in that second era of 0% interest rates, then it seems that the world kind of lost its mind a little bit. We saw record venture capital funds, more unicorns minted than there were days in a month. It was an absolutely hectic period. So what was it about that second period of 0% interest rates that did lead to such an explosion in capital and high price valuations? Well, that is a, do we have a week long for this podcast? <laughs> I mean, honestly, this is my day job. So yeah, it's a long, it's a long topic, but I would say a couple things happen. One, when rates are low for your audience probably knows this, but when rates are low, people are encouraged to take risk, right? In today's environment, if I give the government $100 and they say, I'll pay you 5% over the next 12 months, guaranteed, pretty much risk-free, that's a pretty attractive offering. And so I'm not inclined to take that $100 and put it elsewhere where I'm taking a lot of risk. When interest rates are at zero and I'm getting paid nothing, I'm inclined to want to take risk. And so you saw that with venture funding. You saw that with the public markets. You saw it with things like crypto. You saw it with real estate. All over our country in particular, but really all over the world, you saw sort of a, an asset inflationary environment because people were putting capital into risk assets. I would say in particular related to the tech economy and sort of your question about why did it happen at such a faster and larger pace the second time around, you know, if you look at what was happening with cloud and we had this incredible intersection of innovation in the late kind of 08, 09, 010 with cloud and mobile intersecting. And I would throw in payments as a third rail there. Sure. That all came together at once, right? iPhone launches in 08, App Store adapt in 010, cloud really starts to take off in 08, 09, 010. And you had the integration of payments with companies like PayPal, Stripe, Braintree that really kicked off this whole boom in innovation and technology spending over the last decade. And so what happened was a whole bunch of value was actually created. Yes. And you saw, I'll give you one example, a company like ServiceNow, which is a software company that went public in 2012. The time ServiceNow went public in 2012, it was about a $100 million company. It had done $100 million in, in revenue the prior year. Well, ServiceNow this year will do about $9 billion in revenue. <laughs> so in a decade, that company has come to really dominate its area of the technology and software landscape. And so the, the value of that company today is $90 billion. Yeah. That is a venture-backed company that went public in 2012. In 2013, you could buy it for $40 a share. Today, it's at 470 Wow! So a ton of value was created. At the same time... We had people sort of speculatively throwing dollars at other things 
that could be valuable as well. And that, again, software, real estate, crypto, you name it. And I think that as prices and returns, you know, sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. As companies like ServiceNow and Atlassian and Workday and others created a ton of value for LPs in venture funds, LPs said, gosh, I'd like more of that. Right. And it created more capital flowing into the venture community. And you saw record fundraising for venture capital funds in 19, 20, 21. Yeah. So when I look back at the the kind of the first unicorn era, kind of the 2013 through 2016, things at the time seemed excessive compared to prior norms in the world of venture and startups. We had, I think, Mark Andreessen saying that burn rates were too high and companies were going to go poof and people were concerned about a lot of stuff. Then interest rates went up, things calmed down a little bit. But it seems like when that kind of COVID plus 0% interest rates happened in you know 2021, it was a little bit just compacted into such a small space. And I wonder if if part of the demand for, you know, startup shares and venture capital allocations and so forth wasn't just people wanting to react to a environment that incentivized risk-taking, but also the fact that we were suddenly all at home and it became clear that software, even in a economic downturn, was super durable. And so there was kind of a, a wave of optimism that came with market timing and also 0% interest rates that kind of fused into this multi-year party that we saw. 100%. And you had companies, you know, look at a company like Toast, which went public during that COVID era. And today powers tens of thousands of restaurants in America. We can all pay at the table. You know, those restaurants are using Toast to run their operation. A company like Procore in the construction industry, Shopify and big commerce and e-commerce. So we did see a massive shift in the way our economy is powered. And you know, SMB tech's a big focus for us. Absolutely. 42% of US GDP is SMBs, 55% of employment. Those SMBs 13 years ago were using very little technology. If you walked into your average local merchant in 2010, very few of them had internet access in their shop. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden they got an iPhone and said, well, wait a minute, if I can use this magical, powerful compute device to run my life, why don't I have software to run my business, my shop, my restaurant, my dry cleaner, et cetera? And so what you saw is a whole decade of innovation kick off for technology that is now powering small business in America. It's one category that really took off for the last 13 years, created half a trillion dollars of market value with some of those companies I just mentioned. But you also have categories like cloud security, cloud infrastructure, obviously the whole mobile economy. And then you had things that really took off during the pandemic, like we were just talking about healthcare sure, and telemedicine. Yep, Telemedicine was not a thing until COVID hit. People couldn't actually physically go to the doctor. And you saw companies like Teladoc and Accolade and PlushCare really take off in providing consumers with what they wanted. So I just think we've seen a, you know, think how many, how many consumers today are using Apple Pay oh, or PayPal it's, or it's Venmo or Square Cash that weren't using anything to do with digital money 10 years ago. You know, when I was at VeriSign, I sold a company to VeriSign in 2005 and spent a few years at VeriSign. We were sitting in the middle of digital payments, which at that time was a fraction of the internet economy. And very few Americans actually had a credit card online because they were worried about the safety of that transaction capability. Today, everybody has Amazon Prime, they have credit cards, they have Venmo, they have PayPal. So we sort of take for granted how much innovation has actually happened over the last decade that created a ton of value. And it reinforced the idea that I want to be investing in those companies that are powering that innovation. And then obviously you have Microsoft, Google, Apple, Facebook, which have gone on to create trillions of dollars in market value. Yeah. That to me is a great summary of the post great financial crisis through to today on a linear scale. Like if you just tracked out where we are today versus where we were then. <laughs> and then it went nonlinear. No bumps. That is, a, that is a great summary because the intersection of cloud and mobile, and I would just say the SaaS business model as well, was incredibly powerful as an engine for both value creation, venture returns, and frankly, just, I think, economic improvement for everybody. It's been great. 
I love going into a well, store. Just on that point, though, sure, one of the things we take for granted, again, is the SaaS business model. We took a company public. My partner, Glenn, led an investment in a company called Success Factors back in, I think it was 08 or 09, took it public. It's one of the first cloud software stocks to go public after Salesforce. And I'll never forget Glenn talking about how much time Lars and Bruce Feld, who was the CFO of the company, had to spend educating Wall Street and analysts on how SaaS worked. Because prior to that, prior to that new wave of cloud companies going public, companies sold enterprise licenses. Oh, yeah. In other words, if I sold you a million dollars for the software, you paid me a million dollars. In the SaaS universe, as we all know, that converted to paying me you know, call it $10,000 a month for five years or three years. Completely changed the business model, creates this really great long-term sort of annuity stream, very profitable, but it was very hard for people to get their head around. And as you say, you know, and I know you're a big proponent of this on Twitter, it took time for people to understand that. Today, they understand it. And it's the reason these companies are so valuable. Yeah, but in the last couple of years of the zero interest rate era, things got out of hand. And I think I think it's things we talked about, but also the distance between those early periods of platform shifts that led to this creation of value over time and the fact that we were seeing kind of the tail end of that combined with some kind of unique economic moments that did lead to a speculative period. And part of the result of that was a great number of companies built themselves kind of ahead of revenue, hiring ahead of their needs, burning quickly because the market was rewarding that. Revenue growth was the thing that mattered the most. And then the music kind of stopped. And where we picked up on Twitter recently was some companies kind of got ahead of this and were a little bit better prepared than some others to actually weather a very different venture and macroeconomic climate today. So I'm curious, how early did you slash GGV begin to worry in probably 2021 that the music was coming to a stop? Well, it's a great question. I think, you know, nobody's perfect at timing the market, not even Warren Buffett. Right. (laughs) And I think a lot of us in the public markets and private markets underestimated the shift that was happening with interest rates. You know, even our elected officials, if you wind back the clock to 2021, were saying inflation was transitory. We probably don't need to raise rates too aggressively. Well, it turns out we did. And Whoops. so we've all tried to adjust to that. So I think the thing that is interesting, as you point out today, is, you know, the market is placing a very high value on profitability. And in the software world, we have a metric called rule of 40, which is basically growth rate and profitability. And it's sort of a metric that combines the two. What's really interesting is if you wind back the clock and look at some of the best public software companies today, ServiceNow was profitable when it went public. So I mentioned it had it was about 100 million or 110 million the year before it went public. It generated 10 million of profit. Viva, profitable when it went public. So ServiceNow today is a $90 billion company. Viva is a $28 billion company. So this is not a this is not a new thing. We just sort of lost track of it for a few years while folks were just purely focused on growth. And if you look at the multiples for high growth software companies in that 2021, 20, 22, really 20 and 21, 19, 20, 21, they were off the charts. They were 20, oh, yeah. 30, 40 times forward revenue. Ooh. And now we've gotten into a market which is really more you know, it's more normal. We're not in a crisis. This is a normalized software multiple environment where folks are valuing companies based on a multiple of free cash flow, which theoretically every equity in the public market is valued based on some discount to future cash flow. And so any time where growth and risk are highly valued, you see that sort of go away and folks say, gosh, I'll just pay for growth. I mean, obviously we'd love to all wind back the clock and invest in Amazon in, you know, 2001, 2000, 2003, you'd be a, you know, if you'd put $10,000 in Amazon back then, you'd literally probably be a billionaire. 
But we can't wind back the clock. And so we're looking for the next Amazon, the next ServiceNow, the next Viva. And to your question, there are companies that I think got ahead of that curve, saw that the market was shifting. I'm not sure they were macroeconomists and said, ah, interest rates are rising. Right. But they certainly could read the tea leaves and feel that there was a shift coming in the market. And we saw companies making those changes, I'd say late 21, early 22, companies started to get ahead of that curve. What do you think the tea leaves were? Was it, you know, lengthening sales cycles? Was it a change in in pipeline, a, a shifting customer set, a a demand for more discounts? Like, or the tremors that they might have picked up? It's on? a great question. And actually, the hardest part about the market was we weren't seeing that. We weren't uh. seeing any economic slowdown. Really, you know, I would argue in the software universe, didn't see much of an economic slowdown until late last year. Yeah. And then you saw most of the public software companies guide down for 23. If you take the guidance they gave in December of 21 for 2023, a lot of software companies guided down for 23 in, the, in Q4 and early Q1 of this year. We really didn't see a slowdown in spending and sort of belt tightening among corporate buyers until the second half of 22. So to your question, what made it difficult was we were seeing the public market shift and investors and board members were saying to founders, hey, guys, there's a big shift happening. You need to take note of it and you need to start thinking about changing your business model, tightening things up, burning less cash. But we weren't seeing any real shift in the end user environment. So that made it really hard in the boardrooms to say, hey, guys, I know you're not seeing a slowdown, but it's coming and you've got to get more efficient and more focused as a company. It made it really hard last year for founders. Yeah, because they were being told one thing and seeing another thing. And it's hard to adapt to an anticipated change when you're eating real good today. So the right question here is what fraction of founders, and I know GGV has a large portfolio, you're on boards and so forth, but you also have a lot of friends in the venture world. So what fraction of companies do you think heard that message when the board was ringing the alarm bells, but the customers were still at the door and managed to rectify their operations to better fit what was coming? It's a great question. I don't have perfect data there. The private markets, people, you know, companies don't share their data. I can tell you anecdotally, I've talked to probably 10 or 15, you know, friends who are GPs at other funds. All of us have a handful of companies that have gotten really lean and in some cases profitable. So I'm on the board of a company in New York called Slice. That company made the decision to get profitable right around January of 22, was profitable by June or July, I think. Still profitable today, so generating cash flow. Other names that were given to me are Canva, Calendly, Zapier. Again, I don't have firsthand knowledge of those companies, but I know they're very well run. And I think the thing that's really interesting is in talking to each of the investors in those companies, what they tell me is the culture of that company was always that it was pretty well run. I think it's really hard. You know, if you look at a company like where we don't do a ton in media, and I certainly don't do anything in media, but I noticed that Vice Media just filed for bankruptcy. Yeah. You know, I went back and I sort of looked at the history of that company. It looked like a company was always burning a lot of cash, always had some challenges with its sort of brand and reputation and and the operations of the business. It's really hard to change the culture of a company once it's been set. You saw that with WeWork. You saw it with some other highly valued companies that burned a ton of cash. It's extremely challenging to change the culture of a company. And so one of the things that we spent a lot of time with founders on is how do you build the right culture, the right mindset, get a CFO in early, ideally for software companies, 10, 20, 30 million of ARR. We love to see a, a senior finance exec, if not a CFO, get in there and help to build that cultural mindset around go-to-market efficiency, how much money are we spending on future projects, R&D, things like that. 
But it's hard because, you know, in the 20 and 21 era, you had late stage firms like a soft bank that were willing to give people hundreds of millions of dollars purely for growth. And so you had this sort of yin and yang that the enormous capital chasing growth and the sort of more traditional venture capital, in many cases, it was saying, hey, guys, growth is great, but we've got to build a business that can actually make money over the long run. Which leads me to your your last point, which is sort of what happens next. I think we're going to see a bunch of companies that are really well run that go public in 25 and 26. I think we are going what? to the 25 public- and 26. You just broke my heart. Well, maybe 24, maybe 24. What year I is think- it today, Jeff? What year is it today? <laughs> it's 2023. You're supposed to think like- maybe 24, maybe 24. We'll see. I, I think we'll see. I talked to a, a firm that works with private companies that are, you know, on the glide path to go public. They have a backlog of 150 companies. Yeah. So there is a very healthy pipeline, companies that we all know and love, companies like Databricks and others that are very well known, Stripe, (laughs) that can easily go public tomorrow. The question is, at what valuation? I think we'll see some of those companies go public later this year. We'll see some in 24. It really depends a little bit on what happens with interest rates and how much risk appetite the public market has for new offerings that are both growing fast and hopefully profitable or close to it. When I think about Ali Godsey and the Databricks team, I don't spend a lot of time staying up at night fretting about their ability to grow, just given their historical results. Amazing company. Yeah. And the fact that their CEO has always had, in my view, just in my conversations with him over time, a very good head on his shoulders. Yeah. And a, a really good feel for building for the next 10 years versus how to set his company up for the next fundraising round, which is a perspective that I think a lot of people had when you could raise three times in a year. Why not just be focused on that next iterative cash injection and build that way? But it seems like when you boil down everything you said, Operational excellence seems to be the differentiating factor between companies that were well-equipped to, I'm not going to say pivot, but turn the ship when things were changing versus companies that didn't have that ability to move more quickly. So when we look at startups on a high level, we talk about, you know, revenue growth and, you know, ARR per employee and blah, blah, blah. How do you measure operational excellence in any sort of like material way past a gut check? when you're looking at these companies? It's such a great question because so much of what we do is back founders in a vision, especially early at the seed or the A round, even sometimes at the series B, the metrics aren't there yet. Yeah, We're really betting on a great founder, a big market, a vision that they've got, some early customer traction. And you've got a, you know, a lot of the series A companies that we back, we're backing with five customers, 10 employees, in some cases, no revenue, in some cases, a million of ARR. And you've got to sort of extrapolate and say, gosh, I know the market they're going after is enormous. Can I see that founder building an iconic company? As you get further down the road, series B, C, D, you have metrics to work with. And so the things that we will look for are, you know, a great metric is NRR, net revenue retention. What percent, if you have a customer that spends $100 with you today, how much do they spend with you next year? I'm sort of simplifying it, but oh, it's fine. the top public companies have great NRR north of 120%. And you'll see companies, you know, Salesforce or, you know, Zendesk when it went public or Atlassian, or you'll see these companies with 130, 140, 150% NRR. Well, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to grow each year at a 30, 40, 50, 60% clip when you start the year knowing your existing base is going to grow with you. That got challenging in the second half of 22, and it's going to be challenging in 23 because people have been tightening budgets and in some cases laying off employees, which means they're not spending as much on technology. But you know, you look at a company like CrowdStrike in the security space, unbelievable NRR. So winding back the clock, we look at these companies at Series B and say, okay, you're at 10, 12, 15 million of, of revenue or ARR in a recurring revenue, what's your NRR look like? That's one metric. A second metric you can dive in on is sales efficiency, right? Go-to-market efficiency, CAC, LTV. Those can be a little bit fuzzy, but I can look at the 10 reps that you have on, on your team today. 
how many of them are hitting quota? Yeah. Right. How long does it take a rep to ramp? What's the average sales cycle? So there's some basic underlying fundamentals that we can really dig in on and kind of get a sense of like how well run is this company, in particular as the company gets north of 50 or 60 or 70 million of ARR. Oh, yeah. You can really dive in and they'll typically have a good CFO and good metrics, et cetera. But early on, it's tough. And I think that's, you know, the magic of venture capital, the double-sided coin, right? The magic is you find these incredible founders that go on to build these iconic companies and you find them before the data tells you it's obvious. Yeah. The yang is when you get it wrong, it's very painful. Yeah. On the CrowdStrike point, I just want to say it's uh, further evidence that spending your technology dollars on Formula One sponsorships is a very <laughs> efficient way to grow I know your... you're a big Formula One fan. <laughs> oh, it's just real housewives for petrol heads. That's all it is. It's just a bunch of drama and then occasionally something happens. I want to go back to the, the metrics thing because I was really curious as we discussed unicorns really that got to close to profitability or profitability versus the companies that are still struggling to kind of right size their employee base and cost structure. Was there a unifying factor about how they approached the market that set them apart? So I'm thinking freemium go to market motion or a specific customer type. I know you love SMBs. But I don't know how they performed versus other customer segments, but are there anything that kind of brings those companies together into a group apart from operating intelligently and having a CEO? they can see a little bit around a corner? It's such a great question. So I think if you break enterprise software, you know, sort of the macro category down into subcategories, there are things you can look for. So in a traditional enterprise software business that has high ASP, average selling price, you know, if you're selling software from a half a million to a million dollars a year, even a hundred thousand dollars or more per year, you're an enterprise software company. Yeah. Those companies Again, sales team efficiency, because you're in most cases, you're using a direct sales force to sell to end customers. So you can look at the efficiency of the sales team and sort of say, gosh, if I extrapolate that out, can this company get large and actually generate cash flow and be a very successful public company? When you think about a company like Canva, which is more a Canva or Figma, more of sure. a sort of prosumer or a marketplace type business, you're going to look at how many free users do they have? What's the conversion rate? How long do those people pay for when they do convert? How many of those paying users roll up into an enterprise type deal. So there's a migration path that you can track and sort of learn about. You know, we were investors in Zendesk way back when, our, my partner Glenn, our letter investment there, they were one of the early folks that really pioneered that freemium model. They had tens of thousands of businesses that were using Zendesk for free and then would sort of get on this migratory path to where they became a paying user and then would roll out and become an enterprise paying user. So that model is now pretty well established and you see a lot of companies, you know, following, we call it PLG now, product-led growth. And then in SMB tech, we have a whole set of metrics we track. And I think one of the things that we're very proud of is SMB tech, for the most part, companies early, it's kind of ugly. It's hard. It is such a hard category to build a business in because you get high churn. You know, the death rate of businesses in the U.S. is small businesses like 20, 25%. And so yeah. you kind of have to build that into your model. They're not technology savvy. They don't have a CTO who's buying. They don't tend to want to pay up front. So a lot of SMB tech businesses can be not super attractive in the early days. And you're really betting on the founder and the market category. And so you saw that with Toast. You saw it with Shopify. In the private market, we have Slice and Electric and Homebase. Brightwheel, you know, I backed Dave Vassin at Brightwheel when it was what, pre-revenue. What's Brightwheel? Brightwheel is today is the number one software platform and mobile platform for parents, but for, for pre-K education. So there's hundreds of thousands of pre-K education facilities in the United States. Obviously, an incredibly important part of our economy. Three and a half million kids go to college every year. There's roughly three and a half, four million kids that are born every year. Most of them go to some form of preschool. Yep. And Dave built this incredible software product. 
that enables folks to run their preschool and handle billing and payment for the parents and provide the parents with a terrific mobile app that shows them the experience that their child is having every day. And today he founded that company. We backed it in 2017. I think he founded it in 2014 or 15. Went on Shark Tank. No. Uh, So you can watch Dave's video on Shark Tank. It's awesome. And raised money from Mark Cuban and Chris Saka. And then we led the, uh, uh, Tim Young from ENIAC led the seed round and then we led the Series A. But a great example of an SMB tech business that when we backed it had no revenue. Yeah. And today that company, you know, we raised capital from Bessemer and Edition following us. And it's a super successful company that'll hopefully be a public company in a couple of years. But early on, it was it was hard. You know, yeah. there was no, there wasn't a lot of data to work with that would tell you that that was going to be a big company. And so I think in all of those situations, you know, again, Shopify, Toast, Procore, Dropbox, Ring Central, Wix, Squarespace, all these companies that have gone on to be successful public companies, if you wind back the clock, there weren't a ton of metrics to work with. It's hard. Yeah. The question of was there a unifying factor? The answer is no, but there is inside of each category of business, prosumer, SMB, enterprise, whatever, there are different signals of early excellence that might come before you know, just net retention or the kind of stuff we see later on. So that, that's kind of a bummer though. Well, the, I guess the three unifying things I would say is yeah. one, you have to have a good market. Like building a great business in a bad market is just really hard. You sort of run out of runway. All of those companies are built in good markets that were big, Yeah. right? If you think about electric where Ryan's building, SMB spent $400 billion a year in the US on IT. We know that market's big. Building the product to help them manage IT is hard. Right. But that's the unifying factor is all those companies, you know, restaurant technology where Toast is, big category. E-commerce where Shopify and BigCommerce, big category. So big category, obviously terrific founder, true in venture capital, but like each of those founders is an outlier in terms of the way that they built their business and the vision that they had. And then the third one I'd say is incredible customer demand. When you do reference checks for these companies, I was giving you the example of Brightwheel. When I went back to clock and think about the early days of Brightwheel, Dave had 20,000 merchants using Brightwheel for free. So there was something there that would tell you people want to use this product. And I think, you know, we lost to your question of what happened in the last couple of years. When you throw hundreds of millions of dollars promoting and selling your product, it can be hard to tell, are people really buying this product or is this company just really good at selling it? And so one of the things we always look for is talk to those end customers, right? We go talk to 10, 15, 20 customers. We'll do surveys, try to understand how much demand for this product is there really in the market. And you see that, right? People love running their restaurant on toast. They love running their pre-K education facility on Brightwheel. They love, you know, they just, they love the product. Yeah. And that comes through. So let's flip this around on its head, because if we're talking about operational excellence, big markets and product market fit in the form of the product being ripped out of your hands, my favorite def of uh, product market fit. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm very curious about is the companies that aren't in your bucket of unicorns that manage to pivot intelligently and right-size their cost structure and get towards profitability. Because if there are 150 unicorns that that company knows are heading towards the public markets, call it 250, there's still about a thousand unicorns out there that might not be ready or may not be heading in that direction. So how did they get it so wrong and end up kind of upside down in today's market, struggling between a down round, a shutdown, a recap, or some other less than savory option? Well, I think to be fair, I'm talking about a relatively short period of time, right? This market shift has happened over the last 12 to 18 months. And if you look at Public companies, you know, I tweeted out this week, Monday, MNDY is a stock symbol, incredible company that's in the low-code, no-code space, yep. shifted their business model and are generating free cash flow faster than analysts had expected. And stock went up. Stocks actually doubled in the last six months. So it isn't like all these companies are just poorly run, dead that have to do what they're doing. 
it's just people trying to say, hey, gosh, we really need to reorient the way we're thinking about growth. And you're seeing that even in some of the strongest public companies as well. So I, I want to be careful we don't just paint everything with a broad brush. I'd also say there are certain categories like, you know, you look at the company that Tony Zhu at DoorDash has built. You couldn't have built DoorDash trying to be profitable from day one, right? That was a market share game. You know, same with Uber. These are companies that were expensive to build, are expensive to build. They're game changing. I use both every week. They're amazing. But you couldn't really build those companies, quote unquote, being profitable from day one. We have to sort of realize that in the venture capital world, there are still categories and companies that are going to require a lot of capital if they're going to change an industry completely. I'm old enough to remember back in the day after Amazon went public and a $500 million market cap, there was famously an analyst at Lehman Brothers that said, Amazon's not going to make it. This company will not survive. And today, it's one of the most valuable companies on the planet. So the doubters, there are a lot of founders who will prove the doubters wrong. So I just want to be careful we don't paint everybody with a broad brush. But I think in every category, whether it's consumer, fintech, software, every board, every CFO, every founder is sort of evaluating the business and has at some pace over the last year tried to change the way they're running their business. In some cases, it requires a major surgery. I mean, I'm on the board of one company that's private where you know the founder came to me in September, October and just said, hey, look, I don't think the way we're running the business today, we can be profitable. And we went through a three, four-month exercise. He brought in a former public company CFO to help him out with the process, brought in a former public CEO to help him out with the process. And six months later, and ended up laying off 40% of his people, splitting the business in two. And today, he has a much higher gross margin, much higher net dollar retention business than he did six months ago. But it was painful. It was a really hard bullet to bite. So I think you're seeing that across the landscape. And those stories, you and I were texting about this. I want those stories to be told because... These founders are incredibly brave, right? They're going to their employees and saying, hey, guys, this is going to be really painful, but we've got to make some really hard changes if we want to have a great company down the road. And the other thing that they're all trying to do is make sure that they have plenty of cash runway, right? We know that the venture market has tightened up. There's a lot less capital available to fund that growth. And so in that case, that founder said, I don't ever want to raise capital again. I want that last round of capital that we raised to be the last round we raised before we go public. So it's a really hard time for founders. It's a really hard time for CEOs. One of the best allies they have in almost every one of these cases that I've seen is they have a senior finance leader to help them work through the process. And so one of my biggest pieces of advice when I meet early stage founders that are struggling with this challenge before them, I ask them, who is the finance leader that's helping you? Because it's hard to pull off if you don't have somebody who's deep in finance. Okay, I'm going to press you a little bit on uncovering the less than exciting news here because we outlined the companies that got ahead of this and are now doing very well, your, your canvas of the world. And shout out to them for doing so well. I hope they enjoy having yachts that have smaller yachts inside of them, because huzzah, that it sounds very cool. And then there are the unicorns and more late-stage companies that have done the painful and hard work of reforming how they run their business. How many of billion-dollar startups that we had going into this year fit into those two buckets, do you think, maybe as a fraction, versus those that have either no chance of managing to tinker and change their way towards a more healthy business or are simply unwilling to do so? That is a great question. Because <laughs> I'm guessing it's at least 50%, but I'm curious if I'm being too much of a pessimist and I don't want to be, but I also don't want to be too optimistic either. No, I think that's probably right. You know, if you assume that there are maybe 10, in, if you just sort of use venture law, power law economics, you'd assume that maybe 10% of those 1,200 are really exceptional companies that are going to go on to be the next 
you know, great public companies that we all know and love. And I'm not talking about $90 billion service now. In many cases, I'm talking about two, three, $4 billion companies, but they'll be around for decades, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, beyond that, there are certain categories and sectors where the unit economics changed dramatically with higher interest rates. For example, fintech, a zero interest rate environment created a lot of fintech opportunity that is very different when rates are at 5%. And so I think that category, you know, real estate, there was a lot of interest in property technology. And that category is massive. It's trillions of dollars per year. It's incredibly important to our economy. But it changed a lot when the average mortgage went from two and a half percent to six and a half percent changed a lot. So I think we're just, you know, you've been probably been reading in the or if you watch CNBC or any of the public markets, they talk about the commercial real estate market. Ooh, with what happened in banking, this is sort of getting off track on tech, but like huh. When Silicon Valley Bank failed, everybody sat back and said, gosh, what if a bunch of regional banks fail? Well, it turns out 60% of mortgages in the United States come from regional banks. 80% of commercial real estate loans come from regional banks. 60% of small business loans come from regional banks. So if we see tightening credit in that banking system, it's going to make it really hard for those sectors to do well. And I think the technology companies in those sectors will probably have some headwinds as well. So it's a long way of saying, Alex, I think there are certainly founders and CEOs that were slow to bite the bullet and have had a hard time changing their business. There's also just, you know, as we've seen in, in these other categories that are not tech, when the market environment changes dramatically, when the rules of the game change, it can be hard. Yeah, it can be hard. It's also kind of a reminder that if you're running at an extreme at any point in time, you're probably not leaving enough buffer to be able to pivot if you needed to, if things changed. But at the same time, I feel like venture economics, because it is so outlier focused in terms of where the returns come from, you're almost incentivized as a founder or a venture capitalist to seek out those, I don't know, like- Yeah, the outliers. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of a tough, like you need to be safe, but also if you don't swing for the fences, you're going to end up a shortstop. I actually, I don't know baseball very well. That's my best <laughs> attempt at a baseball analogy. No, but I think that is the paradox of our business, right? We are looking for outliers and outliers do things that are not scalable. You know, the famous- yeah sort of Paul Graham, go to think aren't scalable. Could you have built Airbnb or DoorDash or Uber or you know, could you have built these companies how to do things that were scalable? Probably not. Yeah. And so the outliers are created by these exceptional founders who have these huge visions in these industries and they take the risks and they deal with all the ups and downs. And, you know, look at what happened with Airbnb when COVID hit. Oh, yeah. I mean, Brian Chesky has said very publicly, our business, they lost like 90% of their business in a very short period of time. But what did he do? He raised a billion dollars in debt and he survived. And today that company is an exceptional public company. So I think that we will see some iconic companies come out of this generation, right? Just like we saw in 08, 09, just like we saw in 2000, out of this really challenging environment of 22 and 23, we are going to see an Airbnb. We're going to see you know, a PayPal, we're going to see a ServiceNow, we're going to see an Adobe, we're going to see, you know, look at OpenAI, look at, look at all the things that are happening around us. And by the way, even in some of these public names, right? You talk to hedge fund managers and public investors today, they know, wind back the clock to 2008, I believe Salesforce market cap was around $2 billion. <laughs> 2009, <laughs> it was $3 billion. Yeah. Today, it's like $170, $180 billion. Yeah. We're going to see some runs like that over the next 10 years. And so if you're a public market investor right now, you're grinning and saying, gosh, maybe I should be poking around some of these small cap names that have been beaten down because they do have an exceptional opportunity in a huge category. And they're starting to say, and I might even have appetite for IPOs. And that's where I think we're going to see some opportunities. And you mentioned a few healthy companies like Databricks and others that we'll see get out. Yeah. I don't know if they'll go out this year, next year, but you've got a bunch of really well-run multi-hundred million dollar businesses that are either close to generating being cash flow positive yeah. or already are. 
And I think there'll be a very receptive market to those companies, you know, certainly in 24, if not later this year. Yeah. I know we need to move towards a conclusion. So I'll say this. I think that you're right that the IPOs are not coming Q3, maybe very late Q4, but probably next year. I think as well, however, that there will come a time in around the same time frame when certain companies that either failed to get their costs under control or were simply hit by a changing market harder than other companies begin to to fade away. And so I think we're going to see this weird dichotomy between the winners going public and the losers being sold for parts or whatever. And so I think it's going to be kind of like a, a takeoff and a death cliff 100%. at the same time. You know, what's the saying on Twitter? People always say nature is healing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> It will happen, right? We are going to see companies that can't get funded. You're going to see them acquired with no acquisition price named in the headline, yep. you know, which means they basically were aqua hired. So we are going to see that winnowing. And then I think out of that, we're also going to see this sort of like rising phoenix of a bunch of great private companies. In many cases, not the ones that people already know about today. These are series B, C, D companies that we're all seeing. You know, if you if you took a poll of myself and 10 other GPs, you'd hear a bunch of names of these companies and say, those are your 25, 26 IPOs that people are going to be really excited about. Yeah. And just because I'm a capitalist deep in my bone marrow, huzzah, that sounds pretty exciting. And uh, we'll both be there. But Jeff, we have to call it for today. Thank you so much for your time as always. And uh, please keep telling me interesting things because it keeps my brain ticking along. Everyone else, Equity is back on Friday. And in the meantime, we are on Twitter where we tweet under the handle EquityPod. My name is Alex and it's also my Twitter handle if you want to hang out with me over there. In the meantime, stay cool, everybody. We appreciate you and we'll talk soon. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 